Well, let's pray once more briefly. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We ask that you would hallow your name in our midst as we consider what it means to have your name hallowed in our lives as we consider this command from your very own lips. Speak now for your servants are listening. Amen. A few years ago, there was an article in, on the CNN website that was entitled, Behold, the Atheist's New Ten Commandments. The story explains how Lex Bayer, who was an executive at Airbnb, and John Figder, a humanist chaplain at Stanford University, tried to crowdsource the Ten New Commandments, something they labeled non-commandments. They solicited input from around the world, and they offered $10,000 to the would-be Moses who could give the new Ten Non-Commandments. After receiving more than 2,800 submissions, they appointed a panel of 13 judges to select the ten winners. And here's what they came up with, the ten non-commandments of our age. Number one, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Number two, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Number three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Number four, every person has the right to control of their body. Number five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Number six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Number seven, treat others as you would want to be treated and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Number eight, we have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Number nine, there is no one right way to live. Number ten, leave the world a better place than you found it. Now, I hope that after reading those to you, and after a few moments of reflection, you would see that these new commandments are filled with some pretty stunning contradictions. But even more to the point than that, they presumably are called non-commandments so as to not sound so commandment-ish, but they are all commands. We live in a very perplexing, paradoxical age, don't we? Where many will say right and wrong is what you decide for yourself, and yet these same people will rebuke others for violating any number of assumed commands. As a culture, we may be quite free and liberal when it comes to sex, but we can be absolutely fundamentalist when it comes to the moral claims of that sexual revolution. How can we be told to leave the planet a better place and to think of others and to exercise control over our bodies if there really is no one right way to live? Which is it? Do as we say or do as you please? It can't be both. I know that the contest that I just read to you was a publicity stunt for a book. It almost always is. There's money behind it. But the authors seem to genuinely believe it's a fine idea to develop your own moral code and take the temperature of those around you. But I don't know about you, but I haven't found the Internet to be a great way to accumulate good ideas. In fact, sometimes you find the worst ideas there. Not too long ago, I came across a story about the British government's attempt to name a $287 million polar research vessel and they were going to crowdsource it to figure out what the new name was going to be. 
the government decided to name the royal research ship by way of an internet vote. Would you like to hear what they came up with? The people's overwhelming runaway choice for this new state-of-the-art research vessel, the clear winner of the internet vote was, are you ready for it? Bodie McBoatface. Gotta love the British sense of humor. (laughs) But that wasn't exactly the name that the officials were looking for, and so they decided to call it the fourth place entry, which was Sir David Attenborough. The wisdom of the crowds isn't always wise. So the way to find uh, moral instruction is not by listening to your gut or to your culture, but by listening to God. If you want to know right from wrong, if you want to know how to live the good life, if you want to know how to live in a way that pleases our friends and neighbors, we'd be wise to do things God's way, which means paying careful attention to the Ten Commandments. Now, if you think about it, the Ten Commandments are, are fallen, have fallen on hard times, and, and they're, right, they're, they're critiqued strongly by our culture. But have you ever thought about what life would like, really be like if people kept them? Think about it. How wonderful would like life be if everyone kept the Ten Commandments? What would it be like if everyone loved and served God? If no one worshipped idols, money, or pleasure? If no one would curse, or if no one would... S- if everyone would see how good God is, if everyone honored authority, there'd be no need for police or jails or courts. If no one murdered, we would all feel safe. If no one committed adultery, there'd be no broken homes. If no one would steal, there'd be no need for locks. If no one would bear false witness or lie, if no one would covet, and all people were content with who they were and what they had, I, I think you would think that'd be heaven on earth, because it would be. But unfortunately, ever since the Garden of Eden, our world has been marked by antinomianism, which is a resistance to law. In fact, Albert Moeller says, Western society is addicted to minimal law and maximum flexibility. But here in the words of God on the mountain, we hear something different. We hear ten words given at that point to the people of Israel as a way that was going to control their conduct, not in a way that would limit their happiness, but would in fact serve their joy. It was, as our pastor mentioned earlier, a law of liberty. So what is this law of liberty? Well, they are ten words which we are going to consider over the next ten sermons as we pause a little bit in our series of the Ten Commandments, or series through the book of Exodus to focus in on the Ten Commandments themselves. What are they? They are, the, they are as follows. Number one, we must worship God alone. Number two, we must worship God only in the way he marks out for us. Number three, we must not attach God's name to anything that contradicts his character. Number four, we must rest from our work to show our dependence on God and to confess that he is God and we are not. Number five, we must revere and respect those who give us life and sustain our lives. Number six, we must not take human life or harm it, but instead cherish human life and protect it. Number seven, we must be faithful in marriage and chaste outside of it. Number eight, we must not take what is not ours, but give others what they are due. Number nine, we must not say about others what is not true or otherwise distort the truth in our speech. And number 10, we must not earn what it for what we must not earn for what is not yearn for what is not rightfully ours, but be content with what God gives. And those are the 10 words we're going to unpack 
over the next two and a half months together. Now, Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards summarized the importance of the issue surrounding the Ten Commandments with the following quote. He said, There is perhaps no part of divinity attended with so much intricacy and wherein orthodox divines, that is theologians, do so much differ as stating the precise agreement and difference between the two dispensations of Moses and Christ. What's, that's a very Jonathan Edwards way of saying figuring out how the Ten Commandments function in the life of God's people can be challenging. It's, some, it's something over which God's people have debated for years. But while I want to acknowledge that perplexity, I also want to suggest that the issue is actually much less difficult than it appears to be. God's people over the centuries have basically fallen into two camps. They've either stressed continuity between the new covenant people of God and the old covenant people of God in terms of the moral law, or a measure of discontinuity. But I think that the issue is actually a little bit simpler those who would stress continuity have to recognize that there is a difference between Israel under the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant Church in Jesus Christ. However, in the New, Co- in the New Testament, there is a strong continuity given between the law given here on Sinai and the ethical code for Christians. So in the New Testament, some commands clearly fall away like sacrifices and circumcision and elements of the ceremonial law, and some commands are transformed like the Sabbath command, but some commands remain but with much greater clarity and purpose. And those who would stress discontinuity have to recognize that Christ and the apostles recapitulate, fulfill, and extend the law of Moses with the commandments themselves being shown relevant for the new covenant community. Think of just how Jesus interacted with the Ten Commandments. In Mark chapter 10, when he was interacting with the rich young ruler, you remember when that rich young man came to him and asked him, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus tell him? You know the rules. You know the commandments. He said, and then he lists the last five. He says, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So it's noteworthy when Jesus has to give a convenient way to summarize love for neighbor, he goes to the second table of the law. Romans 13, similarly, when Paul is giving a summary of what it means to love God and love others, he too will reference the Ten Commandments. Romans 13, 8 and 9, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So both Paul and Jesus thought of the Ten Commandments as a way to think through and and underscore and highlight and give definition to love for God and love for other people. And we do wisely to do the same. So this morning we're going to take up the very first of these commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And I want to say three things about this command. And if you have a note sheet, you'll have those in front of you and they'll be on the screen behind me. Number one, the first commandment asserts the exclusivity of God. The first commandment asserts the exclusivity of God. That is, the God of the Bible, controversial statement in our culture, the God of the Bible is the only true God. That is the assertion of the first commandment. Now, why does the first commandment assert this? Well, I want to submit to you, it's because God himself is a monotheist. God believes in only one God. God has only ever believed in one God. And on this issue, he's completely intolerant. 
A.W. <laughs> Tozer famously said that what comes into your minds or our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think that's what God is getting at in the first commandment. Several years ago, some British researchers, we keep going back to these British researchers, what are we going to do with them? Some British researchers went door to door and asked people what they believed about God. Well, we saw what happened when they tried to crowdsource the research vessel. Let's see what we get here. Their question was, do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history, who changes the course of human affairs, who performs miracles, etc.? you believe in that kind of God, that transcendent, all-powerful, sovereign God who involves himself in the world? The typical response was this, quote, no, I don't believe in that God. I just believe in the ordinary God. The ordinary God. Well, I would submit to you that the ordinary God of British research is alive and well in our culture as well. It's the ordinary God that is described by sociologist Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist in their 2005 book, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, where they define the ordinary God as the God of what they call moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism is exposed as a subtle new theology that has been smuggled into some Christian circles, and it craftily presents God as the great cosmic therapist who coaches people to enjoy successful living through happiness, self-esteem, and fulfilling relationships. It teaches people that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about ourselves. Behold the ordinary God, your life coach. But out of this portrait, you almost can't help but think of the same kind of being that would pop out of Aladdin's lamp the great genie who is at your service to fulfill all your needs. His hair would be well combed, his bow tie would be perfectly straight, and a napkin would be draped over his poised forearm ready to serve you. Hello there, you rang. How can I make you feel better right now? How can I serve you? Wow, you're looking really nice today. You are just the greatest thing ever. I'm so lucky to be your God the ordinary God. But, friends, I think this ordinary, lighter-than-air, dehydrated, just-add-water, wax-nosed God of popular culture is a wonderfully functional concept, but unfortunately an idol that's not real. As Mark Twain said, God made us in his image, and since then we've been doing all we can to repay the favor by making him an ours. But that's not the true God. The true God is not just a bigger version of us. The true God is completely other. He is infinite. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's self-existent. He's self-revealing. He's self-defining. He is the sovereign and holy one. So the basic definition of this commandment is that the true God must be the exclusive object of our loyalty, devotion, and worship. That's what the first commandment is after. Having the true God, not a God of our imagination, but the true God as he reveals himself in Scripture to be the exclusive object of our loyalty, devotion, and worship. Now, I think as we move on 
in reading the Bible and come into the New Testament, we learn that the implication of this is that to truly keep this commandment, you have to not only worship the true God as he is, but as he is revealed in Jesus Christ. Because to keep the first commandment biblically means you worship Jesus Christ as God. Why do I say this? Because the Bible, the same Bible that instructs us to make God the exclusive object of our worship, tells us, that same God tells us, that that worship belongs properly to Jesus Christ, His Son. He is the exact representation of God. John 1.14, He's God in human flesh. Hebrews 1.3, he's the exact representation of God. In fact, in John chapter 5, 20, 23, Jesus says, Inasmuch, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he receives worship without telling people to stop doing it. When people worship Jesus, he doesn't say, Don't you know the first commandment? Get off your knees. No, he receives their worship because he is the true God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, God the Father says that he's going to exalt Jesus and he's going to give him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. Here's the implication. If you don't know God in Christ, you don't know God. That's the bottom line. Any religion that does not worship Jesus Christ as God is a form of idolatry. That includes Judaism that does not recognize their Messiah, that includes Islam, that includes Jehovah's Witnesses, that includes Mormons. The first commandment teaches us to worship Jesus as the only one Lord, Savior, and Mediator. And we do that because Jesus himself said it. John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So the first commandment asserts the exclusivity of God. Number two, the first commandment asserts the supremacy of God. Not just the exclusivity of God, but the supremacy of God. That is, that we are to commit ourselves to live under God's rule. To make Him the object of our loyalty, of our devotion, and our worship. So what does it mean, then, to have no other gods before God? That's the phrase that we see in the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. Well, this does not mean that it's permissible to worship false gods just as long as we keep the true God first. God's not saying, okay, you can have all these false gods. He's saying to his people of Israel who've just come out of the land of Egypt, a land filled with worship of many gods, many false gods. And he says, okay, you can kind of keep those, but just make sure I'm at the top of the list. Is that what God's saying? No. How would that work out with your spouse? Think about it. In marriage, suppose a husband came home and said, Honey, it's so good to see you. I want to introduce someone who's very special to me. Don't get me wrong. You're at the top of the list. You're very special to me. But I've met someone else. She's quite lovely. I'm going to spend some time with her. But also a lot of time with you. I just want to let you know that some nights I'm going to be with her instead. And I think you two will get along just fine. You'll be great friends. Remember, you both mean so much to me, and you're number one. What, what would a wife say to that situation? 
Would she say, that's great, dear. I'm honored that I can still be part of your life. Hardly. That wife would say, it's me or her, make up your mind. And if the wife were to say that with a great deal of passion, would anyone think she was being cruel, proud, unfair, or intolerant? No. We would say that she's being what a wife is supposed to be. She has every right to be jealous. We'd be concerned if she wasn't angry. If she said, yeah, I'll sleep on the couch some nights. You can keep her here. Some relationships are meant to be either or, not both and. Marriage is a relationship that demands forsaking all others, and so does a relationship with God. You don't get to have God and your idols on the side. And brothers and sisters, if we're honest, this is our struggle. This is our struggle. When God says before me, he's not talking about rankings. The word before me literally means before my face or besides me. He's saying you may not have other gods instead of me, alongside of me, or in addition to me. When it comes to worshiping God, it's all or nothing. It's God or bust. We're all in. This is why Joshua said in Joshua 24:14, "Choose this day whom you will serve." And why in the battle on Mount Carmel between the false prophets of Baal and Elijah, he said, "If Baal's God, worship him. But if God's God, worship him." It's either or. God is not a spoke on the wheel, brothers and sisters. He's the hub. Okay, that's Christianity. That's the only acceptance of, of, of worship that's legitimate to God is where he is the hub of our lives and not just a convenient spoke on the wheel of our lives. In other words, God is at the center and informing how we live personally and relate in our families and go to work and engage in the life of the church and serve our communities. God's informing all of that as, a, as the central devotion of our lives. It's not that God is equal to as one element of our lives, our community responsibilities and our work responsibilities and our responsibilities to a spouse or our friendships or, or our, our parenting or our, our church life. It's in that he's kind of involved in there as one piece of it. He's 10%. No, he's 100% and informing everything else. That's the idea. Ligon Duncan, Chancellor, President of Reformed Theological Seminary, writes the following. He says, It seems to me that the great struggle of Christians in our church is that of divided loyalties. We want to be Christians and at the same time walk in comfort and agreement with the unbelieving world and culture around us. We want to simultaneously say we are on the Lord's side and we're on the world's side. We want to correct Jesus who says you cannot serve God and mammon and say, oh yes we can, I'm doing it right now. This commandment calls us to single-hearted, single-minded, undivided loyalty, service, love, and devotion and worship of the one true God. End quote. And brothers and sisters, we have to understand that this is the battleground of our hearts every day. Worship is inevitable. Bob Dylan got it right. You've got to serve somebody. We will, and we do. The idols of our age, like sex and science and state and stuff and self are trying to get a hold of us every day. The idols of self abound. This is our main struggle. Is it going to be me or is it going to be God? 
As Oscar Wilde said, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. That's our struggle, the love of self. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, John describes it as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. In other words, pleasure, positions, and possessions. Pleasure, positions, and possessions. Other idols in the scriptures are described as our strength can become an idol, Hebrews 1.11. Our money can be an idol, Matthew 6.24. Things can be an idol, Job 31.24. Our stomachs can be an idol, Philippians 3.19. And yes, family can become an idol, Matthew 10.37-38. So, so how do we know if God is our true God? How do we know if we are not putting other gods before him. I would submit to you two tests that you could use. Number one, the love test. The love test. Who do you love? Who do you love? Origen, that early church father, said, what each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, that for him is God. What do we desire? What do our minds, when they're free to roam and think about anything, what do they think about? How do you spend your money? What do you get excited about? A false god can be any good thing that we focus on to the exclusion of God. It could be a sport, recreation, it could be a hobby or personal interest, it could be an appetite for the finer things in life, it could be career ambition, it could be personal health, it could be even a ministry in the church. Certainly we are committed to enjoy the good that God sends our way. We're commanded to enjoy what God provides, but we must never allow that good thing to become the thing that replaces God as the object of our affections. And we can very conveniently rationalize it away that we're not doing that. So the love test is one way, but also the trust test is another. What's the trust test? The trust test. What, what, do, you, what do you trust? Where do you turn in times of trouble? Luther says, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon is your God. What do you call on or call for when you are desperate, discouraged, or depressed? What's your first instinct? What do you call for? How are you going to feel better? If you could only eat that thing that you love or get that bottle or zone out a little bit, who do you call for in times of trouble, loneliness, discouragement? Some turn to drugs, alcohol, sex, shopping, or some other obsession. Some trust in jobs, insurance policies, government, families, doctors. God can use all these things, and often does, to care for and provide for us. But we are to place our ultimate confidence in Him alone. To trust or love anything more than God is to make it a God. To trust in your strength, or our wisdom, or our goodness, or our duties, or to love anything more than God is to make it a God. So what will it mean, then, for us to put God first in practice? Well, let me give you a few wise men, wiser than me, to give you their answers to that question. What will it mean in practice for me to put God first? First of all, J.I. Packer. He says the following, All the 101 things I have to do each day and the 101 demands on me which I know I must try to meet will all be approached as ventures of loving service to him. 
and I shall do the best I can in everything for his sake. I must wake up each day, enthrone my God, and live. James Boyce, who has gone on to be with the Lord, pastor in Philadelphia for a number of years, says, to keep this commandment, we must strive to see everything from God's point of view. We have to think and act biblically. We must make his moral will our guide and his glory our goal. We must put him first in our thoughts, in our relationships, in our work, in our leisure, and in our recreation. This also means exercising responsible stewardship of all the money, time, and talents he has given us, end quote. So we've seen two things so far in this commandment to have no other gods before God. The first is that, he, that it asserts his exclusivity, and second, that it exerts his supremacy. Third and finally, the first commandment asserts the grace of God. The grace of God. That is, it's rest, rested on and empowered by the gospel. You may be saying, what? I, I've heard, Pastor Mark, you've been preaching for about 30 minutes now, and I've heard a lot. I've heard, I've, heard, I've heard a lot about God's authority. I've heard a lot about his power and supremacy. I've learned a lot about that he is to be our only God, but I haven't heard anything about grace. Well, get ready. You're getting ready to hear it. Because this first commandment asserts the grace of God, and I want to show you three ways as we, this will be the last point. First of all, before anything else, the first commandment shows us our need of a Savior. And that's gracious. Right? Because here's the thing. When we believe we can save ourselves, we break the first commandment. <laughs> because that is to install a God above God. Namely, you. Me. We think we can earn God's favor and love and forgiveness and salvation. And that works orientation of believing we can do enough and be enough and try enough and make it is a violation of the first commandment and it's a violation of the grace of God. Listen, if you don't think you've broken the first commandment repeatedly, times without number, like I have, let me read you the Westminster Confession, Larger Catechism, sorry, not the Confession, but the Westminster Larger Catechism that unpacks what's required and what's forbidden by the first commandment. Just listen to this. Let this wash over you. These are the duties required by the first commandment. First of all, knowing and acknowledging God to be the only true God. Second, worshiping and glorifying Him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring and fearing Him, believing Him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in Him, being zealous for Him, calling on Him, giving all praise and thanks and unyielding obedience and submission to Him with our whole person, being careful to please Him in all things and being sorrowful when He, he is offended by anything and walking humbly with Him. Now, that's just what's required. Here's what's forbidden. Atheism. That is denying or not having a God. Idolatry in having or worshiping more gods than one or any God along with or instead of the true God. Third, not having and recognizing him as God and as our God. Four, the omission of or neglect of anything that's required in this commandment. Ignorance, forgetfulness, misrepresentations or misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him, bold and curious searching into his secrets, all profaneness and hatred of God, self-love, self-seeking, all other 
altogether inordinate and immodest, immoderate setting of our mind, will, or desires on other things and off of him in whole or in part. Vain credulity, unbelief, heresy, misbelief, distrust, despair, incorrigibleness, insensibleness, underjudgments, hardness of heart, pride, presumption, fleshly security, tempting of God, using unlawful means and trusting in lawful means, freshly de- fr- fleshly delights and joys, corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal, lukewarmness, deadness in the things of God, estranging ourselves and apostatizing from God, praying or giving any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creatures, all compacts and contracts consulting with the devil and hearkening to his suggestions, making people the lords of our faith and conscience, making light of and despising God and his commandments, resisting and grieving his spirit, discontent and impatient at his at his dispensations, charging him foolishly for the evils he inflicts on us and ascribing the praise of any good in us, any good that we have, any good that we can do to fortune, to idols, to ourselves, or to any other creature. Now, if that doesn't show you and me our need for a Savior, we didn't read that. That is why we need Jesus, friends, because we are all from the womb breakers of the first commandment. And here's the good news. God sent a Savior. And the first purpose of the Ten Commandments is not to show us how to live. It's to condemn us and show us our need of a Savior. Jesus is the one who had no other gods before God. Remember Matthew chapter 4? When Satan tries to get him to break it and says, I'll give you all these things you bow down and worship. He says, no, I'm going to serve God and him alone. He's not going to have any other gods before God. You know why? Because we do. And he was sent to be our Savior. He resisted Satan. That's why he can say, authentically, I have accomplished all the will that the Father has given me to do. He said that to God in John 17. He said, everything that you've given me to do, I've done. Who can say that? Jesus. Jesus alone. Jesus was born under the law to keep it for our sake. He fulfilled the law, Matthew 5, 18. He took away the curse of the law, Galatians 3, 13. And we get to relate to God through Christ's obedience to the law. That's the glorious good news of the gospel, is that our relationship with God is founded upon commandment keeping, but not ours. Christ's commandment keeping. And we trust in Him. Yes, salvation is by works. His works, not ours. His works accomplish salvation, and we trust in what He has done for us. This is why Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4 says that we, being weakened by the flesh, God sent His Son into the world, not, not, not in, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that He might live in our place, that He might die in our place, and so that we might live out the righteous requirement of the law, but in union with the lawkeeper. Jesus Christ. So, yes, the Ten Commandments are still God's Word to us, but they function differently in light of the one who came to fulfill them and what it means for us as God's justified children to truly, but imperfectly, obey God's law united to the one who truly and perfectly obeyed His law for us. It changes everything. It doesn't mean that the, less, that the Ten Commandments are less important or they don't serve as our ethical norm or they don't inform our obedience. None of that. But Christ must be the object of all of our obedience because even our best obedience is going to fall far, far short of God's standards. But they are, it is perfected through the perfection of Christ as we imperfectly walk with a perfect Savior and cling only and exclusively to Him. So before anything else, the first commandment shows us our need for a Savior. So friend, 
If you're here this morning and you have not yet come to Christ, let the first commandment this morning lead you to Christ. It's what's, if you're, all of us who are here this morning who are Christians, we're not here because we've done everything right. We're here because we've recognized we're treacherous lawbreakers who have come to Christ for forgiveness and pardon. That's it. Nobody here is made good by themselves. Some people have been in Christ about 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years, and they kind of look good and act right. They're learning some things after walking with Jesus. But don't look at them and say, oh, that's how they got into the kingdom. They've always been this way. They've always been nice, middle-class American people. No. Hear the stories. Ask people, who were you? I know you were a wretch somewhere along the line. And we'll tell you. We'll be glad to tell you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. You want to hear some of my story? I'll tell you. It's awful. But not as awful as some of you all. (laughs) Number two, the commandments occur in an environment of grace. The commandments occur in an environment of grace. What did God say before he gave the first commandment? You know there's two verses that come before verse three. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. What does this tell you? This tells you several things. Number one, our obedience to God will be strengthened when we take into account that this is actually what he is saying. I am. God speaking all these words. I am the Lord your God. So he's our Lord. He, he brought us out of slavery. He brought us out of the house of of bondage before he ever gave us commandments. What does that tell you? This tells you grace is first, commandments come second. It's like Jesus said to the woman called in adultery. When she comes, when she comes, she's totally expecting him to condemn her, and he doesn't. What does he say? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He doesn't say to her, go and sin no more, and I won't condemn you. That would be salvation by works. That would be, you need to fix yourself before I accept you. But God says, both Jesus to that woman and God here in Exodus 20, that's not the way it works. You come to me, I save you by grace, by sheer grace, apart from anything you ever did. I saved you. What did Egypt or Israel do to get delivered from Egypt? We spent months in it. They did nothing. They did things that should have sent them back into Egypt. And God saved them by sheer grace, according to his own promise to Abraham, had nothing to do with them whatsoever. He saves them by grace, and now he gives them his law. That is important. It means that we don't get in God's right standing by law-keeping. God puts us in right standing with himself by grace, and we obey him in grateful obedience. That's the order. God frees us by his grace, he gives us new life, and then he calls us to obedience. We're not called to obedience first, and then as a result of that, get new life and grace. No, we desire to do his will because we've already been saved. Not to earn it. The law is the road sign that points us in the right direction, but it's not the vehicle that gets us there. What gets us there, what puts gas in our spiritual tanks and gets us up in the morning to keep serving and walking with God is knowing that as soon as my feet hit the floor, I'm loved. 
I'm loved apart from anything I did yesterday or will do today. I'm loved and saved by God's sheer grace alone. The ten words don't bind us as some sort of covenant of righteousness, but they are a beneficial guide to pursuing it. The law does not redeem sinners. It just shows sinners what a redeemed life will look like and shows them their need for a redeemer. The law is not prescriptive, causing salvation. It's descriptive, showing salvation. Salvation is not the reward of obedience. It's the reason for obedience. It's why we obey. You know, one person who really got this and loved it was William Cooper, even though he struggled immensely. But nevertheless, he wrote a great hymn called Love Constraining to Obedience. And here's what he wrote in that hymn. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but I toiled without success. He's like, I'm trying to do what God asked me to do, and I can't do it. Verse 3. Then to obtain from outward sin, then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now if I feel it, now I feel if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done a righteousness to raise now freely chosen in the son I freely choose his ways to see the law by Christ fulfilled to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice that's what grace does it says if you love me that much I will trust you and walk with you so not only do the commandments show us our need for a savior not only do they occur in an environment of grace but finally their pathways to pleasure their pathways to pleasure listen brothers and sisters if you don't believe that god's way is the good life you won't receive it but listen god's way is the good life it's not the easy life but it's the good life jesus assumes this in john chapter 14 verse 15 jesus says if you love me you'll keep my commandments why? Why do we keep his commandments? Because we love him. We love him. They're, it's pathways to pleasure. Obedience to commandments 5 through 10, as we'll see, is built on obedience to 1 to 4. We love God, and therefore we desire to do what God says. Although most of the commandments are stated negatively, they do imply a positive. Every prohibition that the commandments state is designed to secure a greater pleasure. Okay, So God's not just saying, listen, I know that's really good. I know that that's the best thing for you, but no, you can't have it because I said so. No, the reason God is putting up these guardrails and saying don't do this is because you've got no idea what I have for you on the other side. It's great. It's a pathway to pleasure. There is pleasure in virtue. So let's reframe these negatively in closing. David Murray did this, a pastor and professor, turned the Ten Commandments into uh, pleasure pathways. And I want to read those to you. They'll be on the screen, and then we'll conclude in prayer. Here's the uh, pathways to pleasure that the Ten Commandments give us. Number one, enjoy the pleasure of knowing, loving, and serving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, enjoy the pleasure of worshiping God in the way that he is appointed, approves of, receives, and rewards. Number three, enjoy the pleasure of speaking and singing about God's name, person, character, attributes, and works. Number four, enjoy the pleasure of working six days a week in the calling God has given you, and then enjoy the freedom of one day off to rest and worship God. 
Number five, enjoy the pleasure of following and obeying the earthly leaders God has given you for your earthly, good, earthly and eternal good. Number six, enjoy the pleasure of healthy attitudes and actions that will extend the length and quality of your life. Number seven, enjoy all physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual pleasures with the wife or husband God has given you. Number eight, enjoy the pleasure of earning money and growing wealth to provide for your family and give generously to those who are in need. Number nine, enjoy the pleasure of praising other people and taking every opportunity to promote what is good, true, and beautiful. And number 10, enjoy the pleasure of thankfulness, gratitude, and contentment with all that God has given you. Well, may God help us to do just that. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the words that your own mouth has spoken in the Ten Commandments. We ask that as we've considered this this morning that you would make these commandments pathways to pleasure for us, that we would see them not as ultimately as restrictions but as invitations into the life that you have for us as your image bearers, the way which we can most accurately reflect you and the way that we can best love and serve you and our, and our neighbors and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in this life that you have given us to live. So help us, God. We confess that we have had other gods before you. We confess that we are breakers of the first commandment. We thank you that Jesus is the one who had no other gods before him, and we trust in him exclusively and completely as our righteousness. And we pray that out of transformed hearts by grace, that we would live into and live out this image that you have presented for us as the way in which you've called us to live by grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing in response.